Good morning. Invite you all to take a seat. My name is Courtney Ropp. I am the DEI coordinator here at Goshen College. Um, just a reminder to stay seated um, until you're dismissed and try to avoid talking at transition points. Um, we'll have, I'll come up, Dr. Luke will come up and Dr. Lakendra, and then we have a message from the pandemic task force. So if you could just remain in your seats until you're dismissed, that would be fantastic. This morning, we gather to honor Native American culture and heritage. As author Caitlin Curtis writes, we live in an era in which we're beginning to dig deeper into the questions of how we got here. We are asking why there's so much injustice, why so many police are corrupt, why black men can't kneel during the national anthem, and why a holiday called Columbus Day even exists. It is our job and our work to delve deep into these questions, to explore our identities, our biases, and our heritage. This is the work of each of us, and as part of our work here at Goshen College, today I'd like to invite Dr. Luke Gaucho to help us understand the heritage of this land and the importance of the reparations we have with indigenous people. Dr. Luke Gaucho served as executive director of Mary Lee Environmental Learning Center here at Goshen College in Wolf Lake, Indiana for 22 years until his retirement in 2019. During his tenure, he led the implementation of field-based undergraduate programs, a Master of Arts in Environmental Education program, and the Institute for Ecological Regeneration. Luke's graduate degrees are in educational leadership and administration. Dr. Gaucho provided leadership for the establishment of several creation care and social justice organizations. Luke regularly speaks on the concepts of creation care, leadership, ecological food systems, and repairing relationships with indigenous people. Luke enjoys visiting family, camping, and tending his two-and-a-half-acre urban farm in his retirement. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Luke Gaucho. Good morning, it's a delight to be with you uh, on this grand fall day with the first frost that happened last night, in case you didn't check that out. Um, it's also good to be in this space as a gathered community and recognize that we're part of a much larger gathered community which includes all of God's creation. On the screen you're looking at the Elkhart River just about a mile upstream uh, from where we're at today. A reminder of all these creatures and beautiful uh, flowers, organisms that are part of this space. And we remember that this is part of the homelands uh, and rivers of the Potawatomi and Miami peoples and the Woodlands peoples before them. It's exciting to also think as we look at this picture that the river is a major part of what defined a location for indigenous people as well as other geological and ecological features. So this morning, we recognize that here we are sitting in a place with shelter in what used to be an oak savanna with other woodland uh, or hardwood species in between, lots of hazelnut brushes, bushes underneath, a wonderful place. So this morning, we're going to look at several uh, components uh, four different things and a, kind of an introduction to this verdant landscape, an introduction to the changes that have happened, the causes behind that, 
and uh, learnings and responses that we can choose. I know that many of you are choosing that and we can continue to learn together. So first of all, let's consider this very verdant landscape. And one of the days, ways to do that is to put our minds way back in time. So as we put our minds back in time, uh, excuse me, uh, we look at this savanna, a white oak savanna. So a savanna has limited uh, overstory and of course grasses and flowers growing underneath. And imagine in 1830 that some European white settler people were hired to come in and survey this very land where we are today. And so they actually put a post in the ground. They put a post in the ground to mark the corner of a one mile by one mile section of land. And they made reference to two trees in that case. So they would often choose trees or some other feature uh, to indicate where this post was located. It's kind of ironic because obviously the post is being implanted into a foreign landscape as a post, and yet they're using these living uh, hundred-year-old trees as marker points. So these two white oak trees become the marker point. So I've looked at the surveyor's journals that they would write in at the end of every day. I mean, you're not used to writing cursive, so you may have fun reading these kinds of things up here. But one can notice that here at 80 Chains, at the intersection of section 15, 16, 21, and 22, that means a lot to you, right? Yes? They identified a white oak tree that was 13 inches in diameter and one that was 11 inches in diameter. So these are about 100-year-old trees. Well, that post happens to be right here. Well, the post isn't there anymore, and neither are the trees. But somewhere buried in the intersection of Main Street and College Avenue is a marker that says this is the section corner. And we also recognize that the surveyors started walking east along College Avenue and noting things and putting markers in the ground as well. And so at 38 chains, and if you don't know what a chain is, that's up to you to figure that out later, but at 38 chains, they entered the prairie. So they left the savanna, the oak savanna, and entered the prairie. They continued on on the next page, and they noted at 41 chains, so that's just past the half mile mark. So we now are at about the intersection of College and 15th Street. And there they encounter a road to Fort Wayne, 1830. Uh, there were a few squatters on the land at that point, European squatters, but not many. Here's the map that they drew up as well, and so you can see where Goshen College and Greencroft happens to be located. If you look real hard at this map, you'll see that it, it marks the Elkhart Prairie, and you see an Indian trail that is there. And so when we look at College Avenue facing east, we know that our post is here at the intersection and that the prairie starts just east of the Music Center and continues on out. It's an amazing prairie. Here you see the larger outline in green of this prairie. You see this square mile in which we are located uh, here. And we also note that this trail runs all the way up through this area. 
It goes right through the heart of Greencroft retirement communities. It goes right through the county courthouse in downtown Goshen. It goes through that property. Not too many people know that. And that whole downtown is described as this incredible oak savanna, majestic white oak trees, hundreds of years old. So the Elkhart Prairie was this wonderful, verdant place for the Miami and Potawatomi people to raise their crops. So they raised corn and beans and squash. They also added potatoes along the way. They looked for herbal medicines from the, the forbs, from the, the herbs, uh, flowers of the area. They hunted, they fished. The Elkhart River was described as being crystal clear at that point because all the wetlands were in place. And so this amazing combination of squash, corn, and beans is a very regenerative kind of agricultural approach that I could talk more about, but it's a fascinating piece to consider. And so across this landscape, as well as other places here in the Midwest, were these pocket prairies where people were growing corn. Uh, along riverways, they were harvesting wild rice. Uh, the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi in Dowagic, Michigan, has just recently reintroduced wild rice into some of the wetland and river systems, which is amazing uh, to have that reintroduction. Maybe that'll happen here one of these days. They also gathered uh, maple sap to make maple sugar products that were very important to them. And so across this Elkhart Prairie, especially during the summertime, families and small groups of families would set up a camp and they would have their gardens, they would harvest, and then they would often go back to a, a little bit larger village area for overwintering. Uh, George Winter, uh, a settler, uh, drew a, a whole variety of paintings that are interesting to look at as he captured some of that early history. As we speak about the verdant landscape, it's important for us to keep in mind several key factors. And Sher uh, Sherry Mitchell, a Native American attorney, has highlighted this, and I've read this in multiple different uh, indigenous writings. And the first thing to remember about land and ecology is that it represents all of my relations. I've enjoyed being in a variety of settings, working with indigenous people of different tribes, nation groups, and one of the frequent statements that's made in a welcome opening or in a prayer uh, is a reference to all my relatives or all my relations. We are very interconnected. This is a deep and major theme within the indigenous thought, one that unfortunately Europeans have somehow uh, separated uh, in, in thought. The second point is that the land is seen as kin. So the land is seen as a true relative, not this property to be sought, bought and sold, rather something that is very deeply a part of who we are. After all, if we read the biblical context, we know that Adam and Eve came from the soil, right? And that's embedded within the indigenous thought. And so as uh, Sherry says, we have an obligation to care for the land in the same way we would care for our human relatives. And in a moment, we'll talk about treaties. And so the idea of selling land is just totally foreign, right? Totally foreign to the indigenous people. You don't sell a relative. How do, how do you work on that? 
So you can imagine that confusion. So here we are in this space defined by the Elkhart River watershed, the prairies off to the east, the savannas that once lined this river, um, and so recognizing that I and we all live in this indigenous landscape. I began digging even more deeply into some of these themes about eight years ago when I bought this half acre of land that's just a mile south of where we're sitting along the bike trail, and some of you have come to visit me there or have biked or run by there. And so this was an open acre of ground that I decided to plant a fruit, nut, and berry orchard in. And as I was planting this and digging all the holes for the plants and posts and watching this amazing growth happening, it reminded me that this soil is very rich. This is savanna, prairie-type soil that is just ready to go and make things happen, and you see it there. And so I ask a lot of questions. I could tell you stories about some of the questions I ask. And this is a great place for me to work and think, uh, a place that nourishes me physically and mentally and spiritually. And one of my friends got a copy of the deed or the abstract from when this property was first sold. First time ever in history that it was sold. And that was in 1831. Uh, and here's you know, just a quick view of what that document looks like. And as I turned the page and recognized what was going on, I saw that it was signed by President Andrew Jackson, who was the president at the time of the sale of this property. It was a very sobering point in time for me, and I'll talk a little bit about that as we think about the disruptions and change that has occurred across this landscape. One of the early disruptions that occurred across this landscape was during the Beaver Wars. Beavers were a very precious commodity feeding back into the European economic system. And you can see all the arrows of movement, people especially being forced to head west. And so the red arrows are showing the Iroquois from the New York state area heading into this region. The green arrows, most of them are indicating the movement of Potawatomi, Miami, Ottawa, my, um, and, and other tribal groups further west. As the Iroquois were hired by the Dutch, uh, hired is maybe a strong term there, but they were uh, hired to be able to push into areas so the Dutch would have access to the beaver pelts. A lot of disruption during those years. And after these wars ceased because of the collapse of the beaver industry, Many of the people came back into this area, and so where we are located is where the Potawatomi people returned. So they returned into this area, even though it had been a bit more Miami at that point, so the Miami settled a little to the south and east on toward Fort Wayne from where we are. So we skip ahead to a major time in history when the United States forms, there's the 1776 documents of independence that we're familiar with, and then the war that continued uh, on into 1784. And now you have a new government that forms, and guess what? They're in debt. They have no money, <clears throat> and they had bills to pay for the various uh, armies that were part and troops that were part of fighting in the Revolutionary War. And what you're looking at here is what's called the Northwest Territories. No, this is not Washington and Oregon. Uh, this is north and west of the Ohio River. Okay, that's where it gets its name. <clears throat> 
So there had been agreements that settlers would not come into this land west of the Allegheny Mountain Ranges, but no one was stopping them. And then the government decided, ah, you know, that's a good piece of ground, what we now see as these states represented here. And this is a place where we can get some capital to pay our debts. And literally, that began to happen with the, the treaties that were taken uh, uh, and the way land was taken from the indigenous peoples. The land was surveyed, just like I was talking about in 1830, and the land was sold. And during President Andrew Jackson's era, it was the only time in the United States history that there was no debt because the bank, this bank of land, paid for it. In 1816, Indiana becomes a state. And our state seal, you see the old uh, rendition of that and the current rendition of that, uh, you notice several tragic things in our state seal. The buffalo leaving, the trees being cut down, and yet, you know, there's this sun setting over those mountains, which I'm not sure where those are in Elkhart County, but um, south, southern Indiana, I guess. But, it, you know, it's indicative of the colonizer approach to looking at land and how we treat people and all of the creations. One can study this map of all the treaties that were signed, and the treaties kind of started in the southern part of the state off the Ohio River and headed north. Uh, in 1821, here's an example of a treaty with the Ottawa, but the uh, Chippewa and Potawatomi. So all three of those major tribal nation groups were one big family. And so this is an example of a treaty that was signed. Here you see a list of many names of people on there, including Chief Matea, a Potawatomi chief. And he wrote rather eloquently back there in 1821 about this experience. Uh, it's a much longer speech, but here it says, we speak to you with a good heart and with the feelings of a friend. You are acquainted with this piece of land, the country we live in. Shall we give it up? Take notice, it is a small piece of land. And if we give it away, what will become of us? The great spirit who has provided it for our use allows us to keep it to bring up our young men and support our families. We should incur his anger if we bartered it away. If we had more land, you should get more. But our land has been wasting away ever since the white people became our neighbors. And we have now hardly enough left to cover the bones of our tribe. And this particular treaty with a number 146 on it, where we are now located, was signed in 1828, September of 1828, 193 years ago uh, last month. <clears throat> and one can read through this treaty. If you want access to these kinds of things, I can get that access for you. But I'll just note uh, on the, the last page of the treaty that it says specifically in this treaty for the land that the Indian people of this area can have parcels of ground, but provided that no location shall be made upon the Elkhart Prairie or within five miles of it. Why that statement? This is the most desired land, <clears throat> land within this area. It's the breadbasket for the, the Potawatomi, but it becomes a place of growing many crops for the settler people. And the Potawatomi were pushed out of a lot of different areas, and one can look at how all the tribal groups were pushed uh, in different directions. And so the abandonment or forced out of the, the, the livelihood 
for the Potawatomi in Miami was very severe. But we also note that in 1812, a man was part of a group that marched by foot up from Fort Wayne, and he enters the Elkhart Prairie and thought it the most beautiful country he had ever seen and resolved when the war should close in case the government should ever purchase the land of the Indians, he would come and make his home. Well, guess what? He did. And that's why we have Jackson Township to the south uh, and, and east of where we are uh, today. So you can see this township down in the, the southwestern part of this map. You see the Elkhart Prairie. You see several uh, locator pieces. One thing you don't see on this map is Osbanabi, which is the village, the closest Potawatomi village to where we are right now. There was another one in Elkhart. And of course, people scattered in various smaller groups across this area. This is where Chief Five Metals uh, was the chief. And you see the blue line, again, this road, this major route, this is a very significant route for millennia that traveled from what we now call Fort Wayne to what we now call Chicago. The transfer of all kinds of goods happened uh, through this area. And this is where Colonel John Jackson comes up with the troop, the troops. And on September 11th, 1812, they burned the village down. The Potawatomi had left just hours before. Food was still hot over the fires. More tragic things can be told about that. And so in Benton, as you cross US 33, US 33 between here and Fort Wayne runs on top of a lot of this trail. And so here it says that this is the place where the settlers forded the river. Well, give me a break. Guess what? People had been fording that for hundreds and hundreds of years in that location. But this is a reminder, and fortunately there are people in the county who are working at changing these kinds of signs. It's a long process. But this is an example of how we as colonizers tell the story because we are the winners as we think of it of ourselves. Andrew Jackson as president made some horrific decisions. And here he writes about one of them in the, about the Indian Removal uh, Act in 1830. And I'll just read the yellow. It says, it was a measure I had heart and soul to, uh, so, heart and sought to effect because I was satisfied that the Indians could not possibly live under the laws of the state. If they now shall refuse to accept the liberal terms offered, they only must be liable for whatever evils and difficulties may arise. I feel conscious of nothing uh, having done uh, my duty to my red children, and if any failure of my good intention arises, it will be attributable to their want of duty to themselves, not to me. A tragic history. And if you're driving on the Lincoln Highway heading south out of town, on 15th Street, you will see this stone, which is a reminder of how fear-mongering happened back in that day. And this stone represents where Fort Bean in Goshen, Indiana, in 1832 started being built. It was never completed, a longer story, but it was all built because of fear-mongering that was going on. As time moved along, here in 1837, there's a gathering between the U.S. government and Potawatomi people uh, about the removal from northern Indiana. And what proceeds the following year, during September through November of 1828, is what's called the Potawatomi Trail of Death. 
as they were forced to march this whole route all the way to Kansas, many of them uh, ancestors of this group of 800 people with over 40 dying along the way, um, end up living now in Shawnee, Oklahoma. A tragic trail, as we see. And there were many other removals that happened, too. You know, and just one generation later, in the 1874 atlas of this area, we see all the settler names up there. Often, most of these names are children uh, of the original settlers who came into this area. This is where we're located. Uh, the Cripe family had owned this, and they started the first uh, uh, Dunkard Brethren Church in this area. We see drawings that happen uh, that represent these places. So just a mile south of us, this one house still stands, the Violet House, with John H. Violet, son of John Wesley Violet, who builds this house. And yes, the railroad is going by. That's this railroad that was built in 1870. Last month, I was talking with Dr. Kelly Mosteller. She's an amazing woman providing leadership uh, in the Cultural Heritage Center in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Uh, she's in her... Uh, uh, dress regalia, which is this beautiful uh, photo by Sharon Hoogstratton, who's also a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, lives in Chicago. And Kelly, in our conversation, said to me, uh, this is our land, and she was referring to where we are situated right now. It's where we lived. It's where our ancestors are buried, and it's a place of our origin story. And she said that in a wonderful, gentle way, but a reminder for us to realize that. If we had time, we'd go deep into the root causes of what's happened, uh, the whole Columbus piece. But that, of course, connects into the doctrine of discovery. And that's something I encourage you to study if you've not, to understand how that's been so embedded uh, in our, our life and work. There's so many tragic things that come out of this, of calling the land empty, terra nullis, of saying that people uh, who are not under a Christian prince are somehow subhuman and it gives the right of all the discover discoverers to take this land. So it justifies war, colonization, and slavery. We continue that with whole Western expansion things in this famous painting of John Gass. And we even continue it here in the narrative that's on Wikipedia about Goshen as a city, because it's the Yankee view of this, they themselves, being chosen people identifying with the Old Testament reference to invaders. So what do we learn? How do we respond? These are difficult histories, and we need to engage deeply into these things. It's not a hopeless thing. I'm very grateful to a friend of mine in Oregon, Dr. Randy Woodley, uh, who's done a lot of writing and thinking. He's advised us on some of our work that we've <clears throat> done. And he created this little paradigm to, to say, you know, we begin with awareness. We acknowledge the land that we're on, but that's just the first step. We also have to go through laments through some of the stories I've been telling. And then we work at rehumanizing with the reparations process and thinking through how do we do meaningful uh, restitution with people and then to work at memorializing in a very strong and beneficial way for all peoples that commemorate who we are today and who we want to be. We do remember that the Potawatomi are still with us. They're not gone, right? That's, that's a misnomer that we have. 
And here you see the places where Potawatomi groups are here in the United States and Canada, 10 particular different locations. Um, I've enjoyed going to the Pokagon Band uh, site for a number of reasons, including the powwow uh, in Dwajak. It's not been held because of COVID the last two years, but hopefully it will. It's a great welcoming spot to engage with people from this region as well as other parts of the United States. I've also been grateful to be part of the Dismantling Doctrine of Discovery Coalition since 2014, where we've worked at developing resources to help people understand the doctrine of discovery and other biblical narratives. Just in August, we came out with another resource that you can find online about stories of repair, what individuals and churches and institutions are trying to do. I'm grateful for a group of people uh, here in Elkhart County who've been working to memorialize this amazing trail system. And so this is a draft design that we are working on. We meet again later this week via Zoom to talk how we might be able to get signs along the way of this trail uh, here within Elkhart County and hopefully eventually the other counties between Fort Wayne and Chicago. Uh, we think about the idea of kiosks like this one that is there uh, regarding the Lincoln Highway over by Fittler's Pond. I'm very grateful for the input of Dr. Mostaller and others at the Cultural Heritage Center in Shawnee, and they're willing to work with us on some things. We also are looking to some Miami people to advise us in this work. And so I conclude this morning by sharing this, these two quotes from Dr. Randy Woodley, Cherokee uh, theologian. We all belong to a great community of creation, and we are participating in it together here on Turtle Island, North America. Settler Christians, indigenous people, and all those who are honest about what they see happening in creation have a great ethical, theological, and theological foundation for the pressing work of restoring the community of creation. Thank you to Dr. Luke for a very informative presentation. Thank you for giving us knowledge about the land on which we stand or sit, live and move. If you have listened to that and not been touched to think differently, question some things that we've been taught and move and operate differently, then we will have to do this again and again and again. Because we should have awareness now. And we should also think about what it means to lament. What do reparations look like? And how do we memorialize the Native American or indigenous heritage, not just on this day, not just on or in the month of November, but every day. How do we question in a way that allows us to hear the narrative, the story of people that were always here, that we have to search for and seek for 
in these days. I encourage you to do something differently from this point forward. Watch stories, listen to podcasts, look up research. It's here for us to find. I love the paradigm that Dr. Luke shared from Dr. Randy, Dr. Woodley. You know, I like acronyms. And so for me, there is alarm that's been sounded. The A is awareness. The L is lament. The R is reparations. And the M is memorialize. The alarm has been sounded on this day to continue doing the work, to decentralize folks and narratives that misplace others and in some ways disappear others. This was not meant to be a comfortable conversation. This was meant to open the way and to help us continue to listen for the narrative and to listen for the people for whom this is a story every day. We have some resources that we've put up and these will be in the communicator on Thursday and Friday, so tomorrow. You can also reach out and contact us. Our work over the next year, so when we come back to this time next year, will be to continue touching base with Dr. Luke and looking for ways to grow our resources so that hopefully we might have a panel of indigenous folks or we may have some different kind of programming that would allow you to hear stories from the people themselves. But until then, we walk differently with the alarm that has been raised on today. Awareness, lament, reparations, memorialize. This has been our Honoring Native American Heritage DEI Presents. Next month is Indigenous People's Month or Native American Heritage Month. And we'll continue to hear the stories, but I ask you to continue to do the work. Thank you again. Thank, join me in thanking Dr. Gasco again for his work. And a special thank you also to Courtney for doing the legwork to bring this to us and to do it with me. And you sound, you're, starting to, you're starting to wrap up. Hold on, stay still. Stay still, Shh, there we go, we feel a stillness. We're now gonna have an announcement from our pandemic task force, so we invite Dr. Perez to come and share that. Morning, everyone. Uh, this morning, I wanna bring you a quick message uh, on behalf of the pandemic task force. And so I wanna read that. Uh, I think some of you, or all of you, actually would have received the email this morning at 7 a.m but we thought it would be good to actually read it uh, as well. And so I'm gonna read that for us, and uh, as we go, we can sort of live into a new reality for us as we are uh, in the mask policy era. So as around 92% of us, of students and employees are now fully vaccinated, we've returned safely from fall break. Our experience combined with that of other campuses with high vaccination rates gives us the confidence to make a change to our mask policy on campus effective today. We encourage everyone, students, employees, guests, contractors, to continue to wear masks 
in indoor public spaces on campus. However, masks are only required to be worn in all indoor academic learning spaces, West Lawn Dining Hall when not eating or drinking, chapels convocations, special events as indicated in event promotion. And if you see someone wearing a mask indoors that you are going to interact with, we encourage you to consider it an invitation to put on your own. Having a mask with you at all times is a good idea. Given that there continues to be substantial transmission of the virus in our county and based on CDC guidelines, we still strongly recommend that all individuals, whether you are vaccinated or not, wear a mask in indoor public spaces when off campus. This policy will remain in effect until further notice or until health guidance supports modification. As always, if you have questions, don't hesitate to contact pandemic.goshen.edu or learn more at goshen.edu slash coronavirus. So thank you, wishing you a great rest of the week. Take care.